I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3 and verse 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And our subject is Christ preparing his church. And from this point on, he's preparing the disciples and posterity for him, his own kingdom and coming. But we begin here with the call of the disciples. He goes to a hill, a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. Christ chooses his future apostles, the twelve disciples. They were not volunteers. Of course, they responded freely, and in a sense, they responded voluntarily and willingly. But they did not decide to follow him. He called and appointed them. And so it is. He calls those who are saved. He calls his servants, whether in New Testament times, the twelve apostles, or whether subsequent evangelists, preachers, ministers, called by him, and calleth unto him whom he would. He called twelve. What an interesting Number. Why twelve? Because there had been twelve tribes. Because the Israel of, that was appointed to look for him and expect him, with whom God had a special covenant until the time of Messiah, was numbered by twelve. And so twelve disciples... Even the symbolism is rich. This is the new Israel, the Church of Jesus Christ, the what would be the international Jewish-Gentile Church of Christ, the family of the redeemed. So, corresponding to the old order, which was numbered by 12, so there were 12 disciples or apostles. He calleth unto him whom he would. Says the Apostle Paul of himself, the one born out of due time, called to be an apostle. It's God's appointment. It's Christ's appointment. And here in verse 14, he ordained, which simply means, well, in the Greek verb, he made. He made twelve. And he was to make each one and remake them, that they should be with him throughout his earthly life and ministry and hear his every word and see his every action. They would be, have among them those who would be authors of the New Testament scriptures. They would need to be authenticated, of course, and so they were, and that he might send them forth to preach. They would be his messengers, his sent ones, 
which is what the word apostle means, which will be their title in due time, they were not simply prototype pastors or ministers. They were a special order. There were only the apostles. Judas, of course, was the betrayer. And in due course, the apostle Paul was added to the number and given special revelation. And that's all. We won't go into the qualifications for apostleship, but there were only ever those disciples that became apostles. After that, well, there were the ordinary, uninspired preachers and ministers, dependent entirely upon the word of God, never given revelation to speak directly from God because the scriptures would be complete. No more direct revelation. Yes, God moves, reminds us of things, illuminates our minds, but no new authoritative revelation. The word of God will be complete with the era of the apostles. He ordained 12, he made them, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. And verse 15, to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. That was for them. They needed special authentication. They would give testimony to the resurrection of Christ, having seen it. They would be those who carried the torch, carried the flag, after the death and resurrection of Christ, through whom authoritative scripture was given. They would need special revelation. What right does Peter have to tell us this in an authoritative way? What right does Paul have? Well, they could do the very things in a measure that Christ did. He, to have power to heal sicknesses and, as a separate thing, to cast out devils or demons of darkness. The apostles, the disciples here, were special, a special order. Now today that's often forgotten. And it's said, if they could work miracles, then all of us should be able to. Or at least the teachers, the leaders. But no, that was confined to them. And so the New Testament tells us in the epistles and in Acts, that when wonderful things were done, they were done by the hands of the apostles. Well, we could go into that at length. But here's the list. Verse 16, Simon, he surnamed Peter, impulsive man, inclined to be self-confident and overconfident, was brought down when he denied the Lord, covered in shame, and needed special forgiveness and reinstatement in his office by the Lord. Fallible men. Oh, if we read about Simon Peter, we know a great deal about him. Seems to be generous-hearted, unselfish in many ways. 
forward in many ways. An enormous encouragement, you'd think, to any cause. A man of action. But yet there were the blemishes too. When Christ found him, and many that we don't read about, I'm sure. And then verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. John, the disciple who Christ had a special regard for. Boanerges, sons of thunder, they were fiery, those two men, those brothers. They were uh, outspoken and vehement men by nature, so they had their problems. But you think what Christ did for John? John was given to be the author of five books in the New Testament. John, who was given the longest life of any of them. John, who was given the privilege of the book of Revelation, the final part of the New Testament. And yet, when he was recruited and appointed, he was a son of thunder, an overreactive man, yet became, well, a man of such calm and commanding presence You read the epistles of John and you think the human author that was used to pen these epistles must have been a man of enormous loving kindness and patience. But he didn't start altogether that way. And uh, then you get, uh, well, James, the brother, he was the first Christian martyr. And most of the apostles, so far as we know, were martyred for the cause. And then verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. Thomas, so despondent and inclined to doubt, you know all about him. And Philip, full of awkward questions, questions he should have known the answer to sometimes more inclined to question than to think. So all of them had problems. And we read of Thaddeus. Well, he was a kind of PR man in his mental attitude. He was one of them who thought, why doesn't Christ just get on with becoming famous and showing himself and his miracles much more openly Why is he following this careful plan, hesitating to emerge sometimes, uh, quietly disappearing? He didn't appreciate, though Christ had told them that Christ was working to a timetable, working to Calvary, and the great task he'd come to perform, the sort of PR instinct wanted him to become a great personality and famous and win a kind of earthly kingdom that way. But Philip learned better, as they all did, slow learners sometimes. All of them had a big component of self-seeking. More than once they were caught discussing among themselves which of us will be the most prominent in the kingdom when Christ, they thought Christ was going to uh, achieve an earthly kingdom, which of us will be his chief officers of state? They had these 
unworthy earthly ambitions in them. And that all had to be taken out of them so that they would at length be loyal apostles and even martyrs and stand for Christ and understand the truth. Simon the Canaanite, well, that's an interesting, he wasn't a Canaanite in terms of race, he was a Jew. But the, in the original, this term uh, is also uh, a word from Aramaic, which means zealot, Simon the zealot, as the modern versions often have it. And that's correct, that's, that's better. Though Canaanite is the word. What does that mean? Well, he was the politician among the disciples who were called. And he'd belonged to a political party of zealots who wanted to get rid of Rome by open revolution. Let's get rid of them. Let's rise up in arms. That was his temperament and his political bent. Think what Christ had to do with those disciples. And he did, with the exception of Judas, who he knew all along would be the traitor. His love was so great and his patience with them so great and the constant and gentle way in which he brought them through. Conversion is instantaneous. And wonderful things are accomplished in conversion. Light and understanding, the new nature, the soul brought to life, a new conscience and a great advance in holiness, but by no means is everything accomplished. Then the ongoing Christian life in which we're gradually refined And you see it even within three years of the training of the disciples. The conversion, he's the Messiah. I'll leave everything for him. And then the work of improving and refining and changing. Same with us. There are some things, some sins that are so bad that something terrible has to happen if a Christian commits them, even perhaps exclusion from the church. But it is amazing how gentle the Lord is with us most of the time. And we are reproved by the word of God, by some faithful Christian friend, and by the help of God we repent and we pray And we advance, and the patience of Christ and of the church is with all his people. And you get a picture of it in the training of the disciples. I wish we could go much more into it now. Judas, why did the Lord select Judas when he knew what he was, and he knew he wouldn't be regenerate? He knew he was a thief and self-seeking and a cheat and he knew everything that he would betray him because it was his will, the will of God, that there should be a betrayer. And of course, it helps us in a way. In every company of Christian people, 
There will be those, not maybe behaving like Judas, but who are not really saved. We're a human organization. We do our best to hear testimonies, to make sure people really know the Lord. But we're not infallible. And in the churches, there are people come in who are not really saved. Maybe they think they are. But they're never that dedicated. And if they are, it's for selfish reasons, something they want. And they're the people in the churches at the moment, by and large, who want to bring in all the world into the church. Because they've never really been converted. And some of them are ministers. And they have very worldly tastes. And they want the church to be like the world. And yet believe in Christ at the same time. So we accept that there will be problems. And the Lord had among his twelve this man Judas. Who in due course would be his betrayer. Verse 20. The multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. They came down from that hill, entered into Capernaum, I imagine, entered into a house, and the crowds poured in. There was no room even to set a table or to eat. And then verse 21, what a curious verse. When his friends heard of it, now the Greek there uses a word which means, could be translated roughly in this way. When those who were of him or from him, in other words, his family. This isn't the disciples. This is his family, if you please. And there were a number of them. Of course, we read in John chapter 7, and verse 5, which verses 1 to 5, of an event when his brethren, and there the record says, for they did not believe in him, tried to persuade him, don't go to Jerusalem unless you're just going to show yourself, go to work miracles, not to preach. You'll be executed. Just who, who would... Do what you're doing. And they thought he wanted to set up a, an earthly kingdom without showing your powers and impressing people. They wanted to persuade him to take a different policy because they didn't understand him. His brothers later came to follow him and to understand him. But at this stage, they didn't. And you've got it here, verse 21. When his Family, I don't think they've got Mary in it just yet. In a few verses they will. When his family, his brethren, heard of it, they went out to get hold of him. For they said, he is beside himself. The modern translations say he's out of his mind. They rather like that, but that's a bit strong. He's beside himself, he's better. He's just got overexcited. Why our brother, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he he is a prophet of God, we think, of some kind. I didn't understand his messianic 
nature that he was divine. But uh, he can do amazing things. But he's upset everybody with his preaching. And he's upset the leaders, the clergy, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's telling them that they're virtually, that they're not of God. That they need to be born again. He went to Jerusalem and told one of their leaders he needs an entirely new life. He's even called them, and it's be recorded here in due course, a generation of vipers. And he's saying people should repent. He's implying that we Jewish people are not God's people unless we repent and have some close relationship with him. Who ever heard of such things? And now the crowds are coming. And we think he's just got beside himself, overexcited. They're going to arrest him. They'll surely kill him. They must have heard of the plots and the scheming of the scribes and the Pharisees. They see a big delegation come all the way down from Jerusalem to Capernaum to look at him and inspect him and follow him. This is trouble, they say. Get hold of him. He's beside himself. You think of the humiliations the Lord of glory had to suffer on earth. Even his family trying to protect him from himself, judging him, thinking he's overreached himself. He's gone too far. He needs us to rescue him and put him straight. The indignities and the humiliation, even before they lashed him and nailed him to a cross, even before all the insults and the spurning of him. But it got worse, because verse 22, the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, who they took to be the prince of the demons, the devil himself. He hath a devil. In fact, the way they put it, he hath Beelzebub. This is, this is an insult, worse than saying he's demon-possessed. A demon-possessed person is a hapless, hopeless creature. He's been taken over. He's not in the least responsible. The way they put it with Christ is worse. He hath Beelzebub. He's Satan's agent. He's Satan's man. He's satanically occupied. This is much worse than demon possession. He's the representative of all the powers of darkness. What a terrible thing to say. This is unbelief at its peak. I'm a, I'm a scribe, a Pharisee, a chief priest, whatever. I push to the front of the crowd. I see close up these amazing healings, astonishing things. I see a withered limb and life poured into it and the hands and the fingers fill out and the wrinkles and the dried up appearance disappear. I see things never seen before. 
I see the blind restored with their sight, in due course the dead raised. And I harden my heart, and I say, no, there's an explanation, there's a trick. What is the explanation? He is the devil incarnate. How unreasonable a conclusion is that? What an extreme of hardened, wicked, determined unbelief is that? He hath Beelzebub, not a demon. And Christ's response, he called them unto him and said unto them, using parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? It was the most absurd explanation. In the cold light of day, it's preposterous what they say. They cannot account for the power of Christ and his divine capabilities except by something quite absurd that the devil is destroying himself. Here he has sent a demon into some poor person, because this was the start of it all. The person has been demon-possessed, and now Satan destroys his demon. Ridiculous. Prejudice is so wicked when it's at an extreme. When, when somebody like them, those people, had seen close up the glory and the wonder of Christ, to trump up some explanation like that. And the Lord, though actually, if we studied it, he gives several different arguments here, but they're all compounded in similar phrases. So you have the benefit of a series of arguments and yet repetition to drive the point home. Verse 24, And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And verse 25, And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Verse 26, And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. Is that their theology? Of course not. And they've no answer. They stand condemned. But so obdurate are they, they will not change their position. That's the unpardonable sin, friends. That's the unpardonable sin. Someone who has such light, such clear evidence, and yet is determined and unreasonable in the extreme and unrepentant. And we'll come to that in a moment. But this is all part of the preparation of the church. The disciples are selected, and then we see the opposition that Christ would receive, the disciples would receive, and we would receive. That happens. You became a Christian. You found the Lord. Were you young at the time? And what did people say? 
And what did your family say if they were unconverted? Well, the first thing they said is something perhaps that would be slightly more polite, but what it amounted to is he's out of his mind. She's beside herself. This is just a passing fad or emotion. This is absurd. That's what Christ's brothers said. He's overexcitable. We need to rescue him. And they say of you, well, if he, she doesn't get over this religious phase, this mania, this craze, we shall have to do something to rescue him or her in due time. We have exactly the same kind of reactions. Look at this in verse 27. No man can enter into a strong man's house as a castle. Here you've got some warlord or city-state king in the parable. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, seize his treasure, his riches, except he will first bind the strong man. Christ said more. Luke records, break down the armor in which he trusts, break through the walls, and bind, take captive that king or warlord or strong man, and then he will spoil his house. And that's a picture of the work of Christ. That's what happens in every conversion. It's what was happening then. When Christ cast out demons, you know, we think there had been a tremendous spurt in demon occupation, demons involuntarily occupying people. The people were never invited them in. And the coming of Christ, he cast them out. The coming of Christ ended the great wave of demon possession. It was one of the signs of Messiah. But it also is a figure or simile or picture for conversion. Here we are. We're like a strong man armed. I run my own life. I do my own thing. I have my own ambitions. I know how I want to live, what I want to do. No one's going to persuade me of religion. No one's going to persuade me of a different course of action. I determine my own affairs. I choose what I want and what I'll do and so on. I'm the strong man armed. I'm running my own life. My life is like a fortified castle. It's mine. Then the Spirit of God comes and cracks a great hole in the wall and enters in and takes captive my kingship, my rebellious spirit in my life and clears out all the, my supposed riches, my sins and my polluted tastes and ambitions and hopes and selfishness and begins to reconstruct and develop anew. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man. It's a picture which says there's no neutral position for the soul. 
you're either against Christ or you belong to him. You can never be half a Christian. You can never just, with your mind, believe some things vaguely and carry on with one foot in this world. The old has to be overwhelmed, defeated, all the bad removed, and a new heart and a new beginning. Well, but down to verse 28, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies, wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. That's interesting. Why in danger? There seems to be an inherent contradiction in these words. Never forgiven. On the one hand, on the other hand, only in danger of. Why is that? It's intentional. Because, of course, even extreme unbelief can be repented of. Even extreme unbelief can be repented of and forgiven. But not the very most extreme unbelief, which is rejection of the Holy Spirit. Not in name, but in action. Those scribes and Pharisees close up saw the divinity and power of Christ and rejected it in full light of day. Close up. The most extreme will never repent. Take the Apostle Paul. How was he forgiven? Wasn't he like them? Wasn't he virtually one of them? And he was hardened in unbelief, even to the point of wanting to see those who professed Christ imprisoned and put to death. He was so bigoted and so determined and angry and furious at them, yet he was forgiven. Ah, he tells us, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He never had the full light of day of the scribes and the Pharisees who saw the Lord and his work absolutely close up. He never had that. So there's an extreme, which is the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, turning back his work. If any of you should be tempted by Satan to think you've committed the unpardonable sin, can I offer you a little comfort? You wouldn't be here if you had. You wouldn't set foot in a Bible-believing church. We're talking about an extreme. We're talking about a 
an, an unrepentant extreme. It's a mystery. But it's not something which the believer or the anxious seeker should be concerned about. I want to repent. It's in your heart to repent. You won't be the unpardonable sinner. The forgiveness of God is for you. But we must come to conclusion, dear friends. And I'm just going to um, go down to verse 31. There came then his brethren and his mother. Oh, how sad. They've got Mary in on this now. The boys have been on at her, the young men. And now she's become anxious. She knew he was the Messiah. We know about the marriage feast in Cana and in Galilee, and there was she telling the others to listen to him. She loved him and knew him and realized his messianic mission. But now she's been swayed. Then came his brethren and his mother, standing outside, sent unto him, calling him. And the disciples and others near him say, your mother and brothers are outside. They want you. And verse 33, who is my mother or my brethren? It's customary to say this is a, a reproof to Mary and the brothers. Well, it may be, but you don't have to read it like that. You can see this entirely positively. Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him. This would be the disciples. And said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, those who've given up all for him, are his family. Those who've truly come to him are his family. And in the last verse of the chapter, you get the supreme sign that shows if you're a true convert or not. There are other signs, but here's the greatest mark of all of the person who's truly converted. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother. I'm close to him. And my sister, I'm close to her. And mother, I am gentle to that person, as you would be to a mother, and caring and affectionate. Whoever does my will. Well, what's the test? Maybe you used to come to the house of God Sunday, prayer meeting Monday, Wednesday, Bible study. These are difficult things. Life is very highly pressured. Family life can be complex. All sorts of things have to be done. Not everybody can always come to everything they would like to come to. 
So I don't mean to hurt anybody. But maybe in your case, you could. But you won't. You used to. And somebody says to you, why don't you come back to Bible study? You need it. And you harden your heart and you say, no. I've got out of the habit. I don't want to do that. Or something like that. Listen, here's the great sign of the true convert. Whosoever shall do the will of God. If I can, and it's the will of God, I will. I am touched. I am convicted. And that's my life. That's the greatest sign of conversion. That you've really been changed. That you want to do the will of God. Maybe you're in this state and yet you are truly converted. What a shame. If you've slipped so that you resemble the person who isn't truly converted. Speaks to us all. But it's intended for comfort. If you do the will of God, you're truly converted and Christ is as close to you as a brother or a sister. And he will be as patient with you as you would be to an aging mother. That's the word of God for us this morning.